Beethoven Orchestraville. Orchestraville? Where's that? You change, you change four score and seven to, to 87? A landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. I don't blame them for dyeing your hair, I said, but they waited too long to embalm it. Time now for spinning my dad's vinyl. Here with all his skips, scratches, and pops is my dad, Frank Baccarello. Thanks, sweetie, and thank you for tuning in to episode 102 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. Just because someone yells out, we're number one, doesn't necessarily make it true. But when year after year, your peers say you are number one at what you do, everyone should listen. So get ready for a musician whose style was as unique as his visage and the horn he played with volume 102, The Greatest Trumpet. Mm-hmm. 
Dizzy Gillespie Octet with Blues After Dark, written by Benny Golson in 1957. Blues After Dark is one of Benny's simpler works. The simple, repeated unison riffs are given color and variety through the supporting chords and the development into a second theme before Diz, muted, takes over the first solo. 
Golson's tone shows how significantly he was affected by the warm-toned tenor men of the 30s and 40s. Now, that was from the album Liner Notes, and from now on, I'll introduce a tune using those notes. Okay, why this album for this episode? If you listen to jazz, and if especially if you played trumpet in a jazz band as I did in the mid-1970s, you better know who Diz was. He was on my college history of jazz professor's Mount Rushmore as an innovator, especially in the bebop and avant-garde era of music. Of course, he was also easily recognizable in photos with the puffed-out cheek playing style and that crazy bent upright horn of his. But his music was fast and free, and I'm sure that's why my dad enjoyed his, as this is the second of two Gillespie records we will hear from my dad's vinyl collection. And you have to love how they used words and other lingo from the era for their song titles, and sometimes they just made them up, like this one. Shabazz goes back to around 1952 when Gigi Grice wrote it and played it as part of a Howard McGee date. Dizzy's work here is muted and relatively restrained like most of his contributions to this session. Thank you. 
Shabazz, written by Gigi Grice in 1952. And by the way, Grice and Golson are the featured composers and arrangers for this record. Okay, let me tell you about my dad's vinyl I have chosen for this episode. The Dizzy Gillespie Octet featuring Benny Golson, the greatest trumpet of them all, on the Verve Records label, number MGV8352. It's a vinyl LP album format. It was released in 1959, but it was recorded December 17, 1957 in New York City. And its genre is jazz. It featured Gigi Grice on alto saxophone, Pee Wee Moore on Barry Sax, Tommy Bryant on bass, Charlie Persip on drums, Ray Bryant on piano, Benny Golson on tenor saxophone, Henry Coker on trombone, and of course, Dizzy Gillespie on trumpet. We'll hear five of the eight tunes on this record, and that's because there are some long tunes. There are a ton of liner notes besides those song intros, so I will only read the first two paragraphs, or... At least I will try, as they were written by Leonard Feather, author of the Encyclopedia of Jazz. In the final analysis, it is the musicians who determine the course of music, no matter how energetically the non-playing expert and opinionated aficionados may attempt to deflect its direction. In the case of John Burke's Gillespie, the musicians own enthusiasm, in opposition to the ignorance or open hostility of the critics, placed him in the vanguard of a new jazz movement in 1945, and again it was the musicians, rather than the readers, who in 1960 elected him a member of the All-Stars All-Stars in the jazz men's own segment of the Playboy plebiscite. To these fellow artists today, as 15 years ago, the presence of other major talents, some durable, others ephemeral, cannot remove Gillespie from his place as the greatest trumpet of them all. The phrase, a little pompous on the surface, could hardly be applied with honesty to any other jazz man in terms of overall and current contribution. To nominate Gillespie in this manner is not to negate the innovators from Armstrong to Davis, who have brought their own individual stamp to the horn, when all factors are considered, soul and spirit, complete technical command, the liberation from rhythmic and harmonic limitations, originality, sensitivity, and the priceless element of humor, it may be seen a generation from today by future jazz experts, just as it is seen now by the jury of his peers, that Dizzy alone can qualify for the pretentious but firmly justified title born by this album. Okay, did you get that? <laughs> Let's see what prices this record is being sold at on Discogs.com. $30 for the highest, $1.12 for the lowest, with a $9.81 average and $9.79 median. It was last sold on May 15, 2022 for $7.99. eBay had them anywhere from $10 to $20, and Amazon had several in the $17 range. Now, my dad's record is in fair condition. Not too much crackle between the tracks, but a couple of songs have some pretty good popping going on. The cover isn't in nearly as good condition. In fact, I'll call it poor. While the front cover itself is not in too bad of shape, the seams have a couple of slits in them. Not bad enough for my dad's electrical tape, though. He has that green mark and the word posted stamped on the back. Of course, not only does he have his regular 
address sticker on the front declaring to the world that the record belongs to him, but it's on top of two others, and I couldn't peel any of them back enough uh, to see how far back those addresses go. This is a great collection, so I will value my dad's album at $5. Okay, next, Out of the Past is a song Benny wrote when, instead of arranging an old show tune a la Rogers and Hart for a record date a few years ago, he decided to write an original work along similar lines. His own solo is strongly evocative of Ben Webster.
Books of the Past, written by John Hendricks and Benny Golson in 1957. Okay, time now to learn more about the great Dizzy Gillespie. John Burke's Dizzy Gillespie, along with Charlie Parker, ushered in the era of bebop in the American jazz tradition. He was born October 21, 1917, in Chora, South Carolina, and was the youngest of nine children. He began playing piano at the age of four and received a music scholarship to the Lorenberg Institute in North Carolina. Most noted for his trademark swollen cheeks, Gillespie admitted to copying the style of trumpeter Roy Eldridge early in his career. He replaced Eldridge in the Teddy Hill Band after Eldridge's departure. He began experimenting and creating his own style, which would eventually come to the attention of Mario Bauza, the godfather of Afro-Cuban jazz, who was then a member of the Cab Calloway Orchestra. Joining Calloway in 1939, Gillespie was fired after two years when he cut a portion of Calloway's buttocks with a knife after Cab accused him of throwing spitballs. The two men later became lifelong friends and often retold the story with great relish until both of their deaths. And in fact, that was episode 38's interesting side note. Although noted for his on- and offstage clowning, Gillespie endured as one of the founding fathers of the Afro-Cuban and or Latin jazz tradition. Influenced by Bauza, known as Gillespie's musical father, he was able to fuse Afro-American jazz and Afro-Cuban rhythms to form a burgeoning Cubop sound. Always a musical ambassador, he toured Africa, the Middle East, and Latin America under the sponsorship of the U.S. State Department. Quite often, he returned not only with fresh musical ideas, but with musicians who would eventually go on to achieve world recognition. Diz died of pancreatic cancer on January 6, 1993, at the age of 75, the same insidious disease that took our mother. Now, I want to thank DizzyGillespie.com for the biographical material I just read. And now a song that has the one brother's name I really haven't mentioned on this show. He's the quiet one. A Night at Tony's dates back to a gig played by Gigi a few years ago at a club by that name in Brooklyn. In the company of the four M's, Miles, Max, Mingus, and Monk. Quote, I sat at the piano during intermission and picked out this melody. At first, I was going to call it the four M's, unquote. Gigi, a close friend of Charlie Parker during Bird's last years, shows the influence powerfully in this solo.
A Night at Tony's, written by Gigi Grice in 1957. Time now for this episode's interesting side notes. And they have to do with puffy cheeks and a bent trumpet. First, we turn to Nerdist.com. If you've never seen Gillespie play, images of his neck and cheeks are almost alarming, like someone has attached his neck to a bike pump. It turns out that Dizzy was rather unnatural, both in trumpet style and anatomy. While Dizzy once said that a scientist had studied his face and called them Gillespie's pouches, the more technical term for why his neck bulges like a bullfrog's would be laryngocele. A laryngocele is a benign yet unmissable condition where a person has an empty sac alongside his or her larynx. The air sac can share air with the gases flowing past the voice box and expand when pressure in the mouth or throat is increased. Gillespie was either endowed with or forcefully created from continuous and rigorous use two of them, resulting in that classic visage accompanying his every horn blast. What happened to Gillespie's cheeks specifically, however, was a separate and more common phenomenon. With repeated and heavy use, the mouth's buccinator muscles that line the cheeks can stretch and deform. It's common enough that ballooning cheeks are sometimes called glass blower's disease on account of the occupational practice of forcing air through a metal pipe repeatedly. It's almost fitting that a man who gave so much to jazz had neck anatomy that decided to improvise airflow. And speaking of unique airflow, Dizzy's trumpet bell was bent 45 degrees when a dancer tripped while performing at a birthday party for Gillespie's wife in 1953. He picked it up, played it, and discovered he liked the sound and that it projected better over the heads of the audience of people in the back of the nightclub. It also has two small dents made by a snake charmer's king cobra, which lunged at Gillespie during a trip to India. How scary. After the first horn was disfigured, Gillespie continued to use the bent bells, and they became his trademark. I can hear my mistakes quicker, he once said. One of them made it into the Smithsonian Museum in 1985. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. I've already given you all the reasons I like Diz's music so much, but here's an extra one. During his performance on a Chuck Mangione live album I have, he started talking about Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss's A&M Records, which Mangione recorded for. To this day, because of that banter, I always call that label Anchovy and Mozzarella. Okay, now to finish up. The Indian overtones in Smoke Signal are indicated by special melodic and rhythmic effects in the introduction and by the prominence of Persip on the warpath toward the closing chorus. Gigi's talent for varying the moods of an arrangement can be observed here in the surprise interruption between the first and second choruses. Dizzy's solo is his most intense and fiery of the entire album.
Smoke Signals, written by Gigi Grice in 1955. And there you have selections from Dizzy Gillespie and his octet. So thanks for tuning into Volume 102, The Greatest Trumpet, However You Did. If you want more information about this show, head over to spinningmydadsvinyl.com. I'll be back next week with all my skips, scratches, and pops for Volume 103, Hawaiian sunset. Until then, go with the flow, my friends. (laughs) 